0: We are starting the book of 2 Peter. Let's read verses 1 and 2 together. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. We're starting the second letter written by Peter and as we mentioned several times as we journey through 1 Peter the church was facing a really difficult time. It is believed that 1 Peter was written around somewhere between 64 AD right around 63-64 AD just before or just after Nero started persecuting the church and Christians started being thrown to lions and torn apart and and used as torches and all these types of things were going on. And church history says that Peter died in Rome under that persecution brought on by Nero. And we know that Nero died in June of 68, not 1968, 68, plain old 68. And so Peter was, is writing most likely just before he died, possibly 67 or 68 AD. And this is, and he alludes to his own death towards the end of this letter, But both Peter's Peter's letters were addressing major attacks that the church was facing at the time, while 1 Peter, it addressed the external threat of persecution. 2 Peter addresses the internal and external threat of heresy. I stole that from my brother right there, elders, they're good to have around. But the book is basically, it's three chapters long. You wouldn't know it by the time we're done, but you can read it. And <laughs> you can read it in one sitting. I recommend you do that, and uh, I would encourage you to do that. Chapter 1 is basically a, it's a call to make every effort to, conform our calling, uh, to confirm our calling in our election. And Peter just reminds us of that. He says, man, make every effort to confirm your calling in election. And chapter 2 warns against the attack that was coming through false teachers, and we'll get into that as well. It talks about the false teachers and where they end up going. And it talks about Old Testament patterns for God's dealing with that situation. And then chapter 3 puts everything in context. And this is really Peter's heart. As you remember in chapter, in the first, first Peter, he says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be watchful and pray. Well, in chapter 3 of Second Peter, guess what he does? He talks about the day of the Lord. He talks about the end times. And some of the heresies that were going on there regarding that teaching. And not and so Peter reminds us at the end of the whole book to be on our guard so that we won't be carried away by false teaching and fall away, and for us to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so that's the major thrust. I believe this is a very fitting letter for us as we seek to grow in the grace of knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are facing incredible heresy. Uh, And I don't know, just as a pastor, it, it is very difficult for me to stay true to what God has taught. It is so tempting just to go off in all these other directions and teach all this other stuff. To, to put people in the seats or to appeal to people's nature. It is difficult. I mean, how many of you found it, like, difficult to endure First Peter? <clears throat> it was difficult for me to teach it, right? Because the standard is so high, and it's just so, you know, it's just how these men of God taught was just amazing. And just to simply relay what they're saying is, is is it's swimming upstream in this culture. And I'm not saying that, you know, that my necessarily teaching verse by verse is... is is the way that God has ordained church to be done. But I, te- I think expositional teaching, just simply teaching the Word simply, is, is important. That the people of God would be fed the Word of God so that the sheep would grow. And, and that's very important. And so Peter addresses all the dangers that we're facing the church. In verse 1, Simon Peter is identified as the one writing this letter. If you notice, he says, Simon Peter. It's interesting. So many times, this is the word Simon is <coughs> uh, is basically the, the name that Peter gave that Jesus gave Peter. It's the Greek version of the same word for um, Peter, which is just rock. So he's called Simon Peter. He's writing it in this letter. He identifies himself as that. But Peter briefly identifies himself both as a servant and as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He calls himself a servant and he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I think it's important for us to understand that this is how Peter sees himself as the leader of the church, so to speak, as a leader of the church. He sees himself first as a servant, secondly as an apostle. The term servant here in Greek, is the word for, it's the word doulos, and it's better translated as slave or bondservant. How many of your translations say slave or bondservant? When you think of servant, you kind of think of, I have some rights. But when you think of slave, what do you think of? No rights. It's that one. <laughs> it is. It's, 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 it's slave in the Greek. And, and for Peter to call himself a slave of Jesus Christ really had some serious cultural implications in the Roman Empire that he lived in. Peter was saying that he was possessed by Jesus Christ. He was owned by Jesus Christ and that all he was and that all he did and all he aspired to and, and everything he, he had or did or owned or thought and all those types of things was, was subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's how he viewed himself. To be a, a dulos or a slave of another meant that the person was duty bound to obey that person. They were duty bound to obey that person no matter what the cost. How many of you like Peter, say, I am a doulos of Jesus Christ. Now it wasn't all this way, always this way for Peter. Amen? It wasn't always this way for Peter. If you remember, all throughout Jesus' time with his disciples, they were constantly arguing about who is the greatest. Do you remember this? This was their great preoccupation. Some of you are on Facebook and Snapchat. They argued about who is the best and they kind of posted about it and they did all those things. For example, in Luke 9, Jesus just delivered a boy from demon possession and he quickly turns around and he starts to tell the disciples, he says, hey, listen, the Son of Man is going to be delivered, uh, the Son of Man is, was going to be delivered to the hands of men. And it says that they didn't get it and they were blind to it. And then the very next verse, which is kind of funny, in verse 46 of Luke 9, it says that the argument started among them as to which would be the greatest. At the most pivotal time at the most important message when Jesus is saying listen i'm going to be betrayed i'm going to be die i'm going to die i'm going to be handed over they go just a second lord is it me am i the greatest no way and they're t- they're arguing among themselves about who's the greatest talk about oblivious there's other times when they're walking down the road and they're trying to get some distance between Jesus because they know he doesn't necessarily like them arguing about who's the greatest but they're going to do it anyways He goes, what are you guys talking about? And he already knew what they were talking about. They're like, well, who's the greatest? They were going for the goat conversation, and that wasn't, what, the greatest of all time, right? And it shouldn't have happened. Even right up to the Last Supper, they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest, Luke 22, 24. And And so Jesus had to wash their feet and teach them. And so God has done a deep work in Peter's heart by the time he's writing this. Peter isn't saying in the very first line, hey, listen, I am the big cheese. He isn't saying, he isn't separating himself from the pack. He isn't saying, listen, you all, I've got this all figured out, and, and you gotta do what I say here, and, and all this kind of stuff. He wasn't elevating himself above the church. No, what is he what does he call himself first? How does he first identify himself as a slave? And let me, let's just say that that took some work. That took some work. Anybody, you, anyone else, God's working on that? The lowest of servants. And that's so important to us because that is what a Christian is in one sense. Yes, we are sons and daughters, but we we were slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness. We are we are slaves. We are, we are doulos to Jesus. We are... His, and that is how we come to Him, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not with any authority, not with any power, not with any rights do we come to the Lord Jesus, not with any deals, not with any attributes that would make Him want to buy us, and all this type of stuff, we come totally broken and bankrupt as the Holy Spirit reveals who we are before the Lord, and we come before Him and say, I'm nothing, my life is yours, you are my Lord, save me. And then what he does with a servant is he makes them a son. He makes them a daughter. He adopts us into his kingdom. We're born again into his family. Isn't that amazing grace? And that's how we enter the kingdom. That's why not many won't enter the kingdom. That's why the way is narrow and, and few find it is because many are just, we are just so prideful, speaking from personal experience and the experience that surrounds me. Amen? You too? So we too, like Peter, don't like to be humbled. We like to be, we like to be elevated, but the Lord did it, a deep work in Peter's heart. And that's what Peter said of himself. And by the way, that's what modeled, that Christ modeled for Peter. That's what Christ actually modeled for Peter, to be a, a servant, to be a, a slave. as we see Christ submitting fully to the Father. A couple of weeks ago, Marcus Wilcox, the elder here, um, he was speaking to the men on pride and humility at the men's breakfast, and I, I happened to write down the verses he was he was, uh, he was was quoting, and I'll just read them for you regarding Jesus and his humility towards the Father. John 5.19, just giving you a cross-section here. John 5.19 Jesus gave them the answer very truly. I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son does also. He's totally given up. He's given over to whatever the father's will is there. John 5.30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just. Why? For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. It's the model of a servant. John 6:38, "For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who what. Him who sent me. John 7:16, Jesus answered, "My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me." John 7:28. Then Jesus said, "Still teaching in the temple courts, and he cried out, "Yes, you know me, and you know where I come from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true." And he goes on to say, "But you don't know him." John eight twenty eight through 30. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own, but I speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. We see this over and over in John, and then when you get to John actually you know, 17, when he does the high priestly prayer, he says, everything I've done, I've done because you've done it. You've told me to do it. And here they are, Lord. I've committed them. You've committed them to me, and now I commit them back to you. And now we're going to send the Holy Spirit, and now they're going to go get us. That we may be one with Him, that we may be servants of the living God. And so Jesus modeled the life of a servant for Peter, all the while being the Son of God. And it's important, like if you read Hebrews, the first two chapters, you realize that everything was made by him and for him, and that's in Colossians, obviously, but he was made a little lower than the angels, and, and the Peter, I mean, the writer of Hebrews is just making this point that, that Christ is just so above everything, and yet he descended to become nothing, and yet he's back there, ascended above everything. And, and now we have a high priest who can relate with us in, in all these types of things. And that's, that's the big picture. But we see Christ came in the form of a servant, the form of a bond servant, the lowest of the lowest. And if the king is a servant, what about his subjects? What should we take upon? What should, what should our hearts be? What should our lives look like? And this was hard for Peter. He he was. They were fighting about it, like I already mentioned. Right before Jesus was about to be betrayed, right up to the place where Jesus wasn't going to be there anymore, they were still arguing about who was going to be the greatest. And Jesus had to do something radical. I already alluded to it. John thirteen three through sixteen it says Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, so Jesus knew His authority, and that He had come from God and was returning to God. And so He got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and breathed fire on everything and they were all destroyed. And he flexed his muscles and rode the wave of the universe and that's not my Bible. So he got up for the meal he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Or Lord, are you going to wa-? I don't know the inflection there. But Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you're going to understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Then the Lord, then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to, be, only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, through, though not every one of you, for he knew he was going to betray him. And that was why he said, Not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes. And he returned to his place. He says, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Notice his position. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And here's the principle, very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Peter had to have several difficult lessons in humility and what it meant to be a servant. And here Jesus is saying, I am Lord and Master, and you are sons and daughters. Do not forget that. I'm not, we're not saying you aren't, right? Amen? But as a son or daughter who reflects the Father, who are we? We're servants. We're humble servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Boy, for Peter, he was called to be an apostle. For Peter, he was called to be an apostle. And that's the second thing that Peter identifies himself as, a slave and an apostle. An apostle was one who was officially sent by Jesus to be a witness of the resurrection who was given authority, and they were given authority to proclaim the truth. And at the end of Luke's gospel in chapter 24, the risen Lord is about to ascend into heaven, and he tells the apostles in verses 44 through 49, I'm going to read it for you, he said to them, that is the apostles. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written: the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in the name, in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Verse 48, Peter, you are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And so an apostle, they were the ones sent and empowered by the Lord Jesus Christ to be witnesses, eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which they witnessed. And they were to proclaim that Jesus is alive. And they were to proclaim, just as the Old Testament had, had, had taught, they were to proclaim repentance. It means ter- everybody can turn from their sins and actually receive forgiveness from God for our sins. And the Holy Spirit goes out and He convicts people's hearts. And as the gospel goes forward, people either turn in repentance or they stay in sin. But there is peace available to you, to me right now. That is why we have the gospel because the Holy Spirit empowered these men to go proclaim it who came to us or came to believers and through the ages people came to the Lord. And I don't know who you heard the message of salvation from, but this is our lineage. And Paul was an apostle of that. So Jesus empowered Peter. Peter was one of those men who was a part of Jesus' ministry. He walked with Jesus. He saw Jesus. He watched him sleep on the boat. He watched him walk on water. He walked on water with Jesus. Peter saw the ministry of the Messiah. He saw everything that was fulfilled in the Old Testament. He saw it fulfilled before his eyes. He was a firsthand witness of those Old Testament prophecies. He saw Jesus die. He saw the empty, empty tomb. He saw Jesus rise from the dead. He jumped off the boat and had fish with him on the shore and had a conversation about feeding the sheep and about how he would die. And so Jesus empowered Peter by the Holy Spirit. And on Pentecost, if you remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, and what happens? What happens? Holy Spirit falls on Peter, and Peter's a different guy. And he is a witness. Of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and thousands come to the Lord. Does Peter still have issues? Yeah, Paul has to call him out on some stuff. I mean, crying out loud. Jesus has to do the sheet with the meat thing three times, and there's stuff going on there. But here he is. He calls himself both a servant and an apostle. And that's important because he's going to be correcting some false teaching. So he does have authority. And so Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. And so Peter is writing to those, <coughs> excuse me, who, through the righteousness of, Jesus, of our God and Je- God and Savior Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Either. Ours as the apostles, or ours as the Jews, because he might be talking to some Gentiles, but they received the same, alike faith. And so Peter starts with the gospel. We have received a faith. And I believe he is speaking here of the message of the gospel. We have received a precious faith through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. We were given the faith, not only the message, we were given the faith to believe. It's a precious gift. We were dead and separated from God, deserving judgment, but God in His grace through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, through His death, through His resurrection, and through faith in that, we now have received a precious salvation. You've been saved. You receive a precious faith, just like Peter's, just like the Jews who believed. And now the Gentiles are experiencing that. And that's the message that Paul really relays in Ephesians chapter two. As we see the grace of God in Christ Jesus, as for you, you were what? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, we've talked about this before, but dead things don't really relate well to anything else around them, right? I remember a story. My sister had a nursed this bird back to health, and it was like you got attacked by a cat or something like that, and, and it, was, it was pretty amazing. She was very kind and, and merciful to this, this thing. It was nursed back to health, and uh, anyways, one day we brought it up on our bank, and we decided to set it on the thing, get it to fly, and it flew off across the street, and a box van came and smacked it I've rolled and I fell down laughing so hard. I was so I'm a bad brother, right? <laughs> I'm a bad brother. But she got it and it was like, no matter of love, no matter of nurturing, nothing. That thing was not respond, responding to anything she had to offer. We're dead in our transgressions and sins, hit by the boxcar of sin, amen? And that's where we are, flopping, dead on the road, gone. We didn't run over a hundred times. That's who we are. But God, He's not limited by that. And this is the thing. It says that because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, He made us alive with Christ. I can't breathe life into that. You can't breathe life. I can't do that into myself. There's nothing within us that can do that. Amen? But the one who holds life in His hands, if He chooses to breathe, then we become alive by grace. We were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. He saw you dead, and He had mercy on you, and he, His grace, his, his loving kindness came towards you in Christ Jesus. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him, and notice everything is attached to Christ, to Son, His Son, His righteousness. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming of age, and you wonder what's happening after you die. Every you guys wonder about getting like, okay, will God still love me in a million years? Will God still be merciful to me in a million years? Do you ever wonder that? What if God stops loving me? What if God stops being merciful to me? Just me. I don't know. This is where I would go. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Unending grace. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this isn't of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We have received precious faith, not only the message of the gospel, but I believe also the, the faith to believe. And it's all a gift. It's not from ourselves. And I, but nevertheless, we're responsible to believe. That's the way the Bible puts it. You must believe. And when, we're, when we believe, we receive salvation. that grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I hope you caught that, by the way, that Peter calls Jesus both God and and Savior, right? There is no righteous, the Bible says, no, not one. That's how we're saved, by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not by our own righteousness. The Bible, Romans 3, there is no one righteous, no, not one, declares the Lord. None is righteous, no, not one, No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's the boat we're all in. Boxcar dead on the road. But there's one who lives. There's one who's righteous. And it is through His righteousness that we have righteousness. Through His righteousness imputed to us, given to us, that we now have His life, we have His righteousness, and we have position before God. I love that. And so Peter says in verse 2, because of Jesus Christ, because of His righteousness on your life, church, that just abounds, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Through the knowledge of God, and of Jesus, our Lord. And Peter gives this typical apostolic greeting of grace and peace. And some think it's the, both the, uh, the Greek and the Jewish terms of grace. You know, uh, the, 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 um, the Greeks would say, uh, you know, grace to you today, basically. In other words, uh, you know, goodness to you today is kind of how it's kind of translated. And, and the Jews would say peace, shalom. And so just kind of grace and peace to you in abundance. But as I was taught, it's always in this order as the apostles do this. You will never know the peace of God until you experience the grace of God. The grace comes first and then the peace comes after. I love that. And as as we read, you know, as we just read, you were saved by grace. You were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a gift from God. Salvation cannot be earned, church. It cannot be earned. It is given. It is offered, but you must believe. You must receive it. And and God has shown us undeserved favor, his undeserved loving kindness in Christ Jesus. You have God's undeserved loving kindness right now in Christ Jesus. How he loves you. Hmm. He sent his son to die in our place. He rose, raised Him from the dead, that we would be forgiven and given new life, that we would be born again, that we would become sons and daughters of the living God. What grace. And until you have received that grace, until you have re- been born again, until the punishment that was due you is, is, is recognized and ratified in your heart as being put upon Jesus Christ, there is no peace in your heart with God. But through Christ, right now, because of Christ, it's all paid for. You have peace with, with God through Jesus Christ. And, and it's good that we would be established in grace, that, that our hearts would be resting on that finished work of Jesus Christ, that because of Him, we are at peace with God. It's important. When you have experienced that, when you have received the Lord Jesus, then peace, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 7. And so Peter says, grace and peace in abundance. In abundance. How many of you want just a little grace and peace? No, I want Costco grace and peace. I want the trucks to just keep back in and just keep dumping it. I need it. Amen? Amen. I love that, and that means multiplied. It needs to be multiplied to abound to you. Grace and peace is the substance of what Christ died to give us, that we would be in grace and peace with God. That's, that's how we are. We are under the grace, under grace in Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. And Peter desires that the substance of the kingdom abound in our lives more and more, that our minds and our hearts would be grounded in. Resting in the great work that God has done on our behalf. You need that today, church. Amen? And instead of resting on our, on our fickleness, to rest on His promises, what He has done on our behalf. Amen? Well, how does that happen? How do I rest How do I have more grace in my life? Not as if we can have more grace, but how do we realize the grace? How do we realize the peace more and more of what God has done on our behalf? How does this happen? Peter says the grace and peace abound through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. God desires that you have a deep understanding and experience of His grace and peace in your life. That it would multiply and That grace and peace abounds in the believer's life when we increase in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus. That word for knowledge is is, is going to be repeated several times. Peter says it a lot. And it's important that we don't miss it. The word for knowledge here is epinosis, which basically means a precise and correct, correct knowledge. That's what that means, a precise and correct knowledge. I know that sounds kind of clinical, you know. But the idea is that the knowledge of who Jesus is isn't simply a Wikipedia page to you. It isn't, I know about Jesus. In other words, you know Him personally, through experientially. In other words, through His Word in your heart, your life has been changed and and, and, and you've developed. He's taught you. There's a depth to your life. Uh, The things that are false got got corrected. The things that are, 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 are loose are, are being honed, and you see His character, and your life's conforming to it as His Word is doing that deep work by His Spirit in your heart. And so God desires that you have a deep understanding of who He is. And the result of that deep understanding of who He is is an overflowing of grace and peace. Because when your hearts and your minds see Jesus, and you know Jesus, and you know God, and you hear His Word, and you, and you follow and you obey, guess what? It happens in your hearts and your lives. No matter what's going on, man, you realize the grace that God has for you, the peace that passes all understanding. Peter says he desires that it multiplies through the knowledge and grace, uh, through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's imperative that believers have a precise and correct knowledge of God. And I think this is important. And so Peter desires that the church would abound in grace and peace through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. And as a pastor, this has been weighing heavily on my heart for us as Christ Community Fellowship, that our lives would be abounding in grace and peace, but not a false grace and a false peace, but a true grace and a true peace based upon the Word of God, which is true, which reflects His character. And so there's a pattern for spiritual growth for us There's a pattern to grow. If you just keep reading in the next few verses in verses five through nine, he gives us kind of like how to continue to grow spiritually. And then I'll just read them for you. We'll come back to it. But for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and add to your goodness knowledge, into your knowledge, self-control, into your into self-control, perseverance, into perseverance, godliness. And you know, to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities, increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice knowledge is, knowledge is supposed to produce something in our lives, correct? It's supposed to be effective. And we know the verse that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge is not a bad thing. Knowledge is, is important. Only if it leads to love, correct? If it, it leads to Christ-likeness. If, if, you, if we just teach you about Jesus and you know a bunch of, about Jesus, but Jesus is not living in our lives, that's the problem. But the knowledge is, is to produce things. Notice all these things build upon one another. They add. And so my heart, in our hearts as, as a leadership, is that each of us, you become men and women of the Word in increasing measure, not for the Word's sake. We don't want to become Pharisees, but that you would know the Word of God so precisely and correctly, not for the sake of knowledge, church, but so that you would know Him as He reveals Himself to you through His Word, by His Spirit. As you crack open the page... And you start reading about his character and how he deals with things. You begin to wonder. He, he begins to connect your own life in those circumstances. You begin to see how he is and who he is. And it's not just what Pastor Matt says. It's not just everybody. You are having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as he begins to speak. And yes, there is a place for the body and correct doctrine and all those things. And we all hold each other accountable. And that's there. But how many of you, if, if, I, were to, if I were to speak to you right now and say, what does it mean to be saved? What would your answer be? And, and I know that you guys would go, hey, it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. W- believe what? Somebody died and he rose again. Where do you find that? Why is that true? And how many of you feel like that's where I fall apart? Anyone? Anyone? Or can we, do we know him and his character? Do we know what he said? Our lives established upon what he says. And, and, and it's not necessarily, we. you know, we can navigate to all these verses. We know him. How many of you are, are all married? <clears throat> How many of you have friends that think that they know about your spouse? But you know your spouse. You know what inside out, in, in, in experientially, right? There's, there you can talk about them. You would know how they would handle a circumstance or how they react to something, something that fits in their character or against their character or where they stand. So you know all these things, right? The favorite football teams or lack of favorite football teams, all that kind of stuff, right? You just know them inside and out. Do we know God this way? He wants us to know Him that way. And He's given us So much to be able to do that. We are so blessed, especially in America, with so many resources to be able to dig into the Word of God so that we would know the God of the Word. It's my heart that we would know Him and that His life would be manifested in the church. Not that you guys would just be Bible scholars but just He would rub off on us. That His life would just explode in your life. That He would overflow into every aspect of what's going on in there. And that the the Lord would be so present in each of our hearts and our lives. That the witness of this church wouldn't be You know, we've got a rock in this or this or that. You know, but it's just like, man, they look like Jesus. They talk like Jesus. Man, they just love like Jesus. What's going on there? And so we've been praying about how to increase your knowledge, our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, other than Sunday mornings and in life groups, and to further equip you and so that you can grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so in the coming months, will you please be praying for us as we are developing opportunities, not just programs, but opportunities that we think would, would help benefit the believers to go deeper. I want you to be able to, not only in men's and, and women's Bible studies and children's Bible studies, but, but just in general, to be able to study your Bible, to know it. How many of you can open the Bible like, and get what I get out of it on, like, on a Sunday morning. I want it to where you don't need me, that you can feed, you can grow up, you can discern, you can, you can test this, and now you can go make disciples. Amen? Um, well, not that you don't need me. I want you, but you know what I'm talking about. So, we're praying about how to further implement the Word of God in every area so that you will know the God of the Word and grow in your knowledge of the Lord. We're working on how to restructure and start new Bible studies for our men and for our women that will cause us to grow deeper, allow us to grow deeper. And so it's important, and, and we could use your prayer as we continue to seek about how to go about that. And again, our, our desire is that you wouldn't walk away with just head knowledge. And that's always the danger, you know? That's always the danger. Great, you know how to study your Bible, you can parse Greek, wonderful. You know church history, so happy for you. Do you love one another? But notice he says that you increase in the knowledge. You have to open the book. You have to read it pray you have to ask you have to follow you have to obey it's just simply sanctification just and and when we when we do this as christians we start to grow we grow in the things of the spirit and his life starts to take hold of in our hearts and it shows in every aspect and that's what we're aiming for that that it wouldn't be like the ephesians who have it all right but have left our first love but it would be all that You know, so again, our desire, my desire is that you wouldn't walk away with just head knowledge, but you would know your God and the great grace and peace that are yours in Christ Jesus, that you'd be firmly established in what he says about you and your place in his kingdom as his daughter, as his son. And so grace and peace be multiplied through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ to you today. That's extended to you. We are the church, and this letter goes to us. Grace and peace be multiplied to you today from, guess who? From God. Right now, to you, his grace and peace is multiplied to you. Isn't that sweet? Through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's always attached to him. We'll pick up next week where Peter will be teaching us how to grow and not stagnate. I would encourage you to be here because he's going to start to say, add to your faith. Add to your faith all these things. I want to grow in Christ. How many of you are stagnating in your walk? Lord, give me a shot of something. And I know next, next week it is, it is daylight savings. And so, is it the good way or the bad way? That's the bad, the bad way. way. Okay, great. Perfect. <coughs> We'll see you then. <laughs> Lord God, we love you. <laughs> and we just thank you so much for this, this word to us. And, and, I, and I, Lord, I can't wait for what you're going to show us. We want to grow in you. We want to experience your peace and your, your grace, Lord, in our lives, your grace and peace. And I pray that it would flood. I pray for the, the, the heart that's overwhelmed this morning. They would run into the cleft of the rock, which is God, and they would run into there and be safe you'd speak to them in their heart of hearts. They would hear your truth, not just boys and all the stuff, but your word. And so, Lord, establish our hearts, and we just want to thank you for this day. Bless your sheep as they go, God. Watch over them in the ice and the snow, and just keep your hand upon them this week. May your grace abound. In the name of Jesus, amen. Lord, bless you. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Take care.